standing with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll be reading verses 4 through 14. 1 Corinthians 9, 4 through 14. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Uh, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers and the Lord and Cephas. Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or tends a flock and does not use the milk? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher ought to thresh in hope, and sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. May God add His rich blessing to the reading of His word. Let's ask for His help now to understand. O God, because without You we are not able to please You, mercifully grant that Your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Your Word. This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I'll never forget the very first real payday I ever experienced at what I would call my first job. It wasn't that I didn't have a job before. I actually had a lot of jobs since I was about 12, mostly working for my family. Started working for my uncle's upholstery shop when I was about 12. I worked a couple of summers with my cousins who were ranchers. I worked another summer or two with my grandfather. It was always good people that I knew. It was always situations that I understood. It was uh, a lot less formal than this first real job at Ernie's Toyland. And I'll never forget what happened one day after I started working there, not too long after I started working there, on a Friday afternoon about 4.30. I was building a display at the front end of the store and quickly uh, realized that almost all the co-workers from the front of the building were gone, except for me and the cashier. And so after a while I made my way to the back and I noticed as I did that there was a very long line extending from the warehouse into the back end of the store. And so I said to my friend Phil, I said, what are all these people doing here? And uh, his uh, very terse reply to me was, well, it's payday. As if I should know that this is why people line up in the back of the building. And apparently what it meant was that every other Friday at 4.30 in the afternoon, all of the employees lined up and waited in front of the office until the secretary came out with all the paychecks. 
I'll never forget that. I walked to the back of the line. I followed suit like the rest of my coworkers. And I'll never forget opening up that envelope with this very official corporate-looking paycheck. And something really occurred to me at that point was that there is a real connection between work and a paycheck. There's a very real connection between work and a paycheck. After all those uh, hours and days of showing up to work and punching the clock and and going through uh, all the routines of work, at the end of two weeks, there's there's a paycheck that comes to you. The Apostle makes that argument here. He says that Christ has forged a very real connection between work and a paycheck. Particularly here, he's not arguing in all instances that occurs, though he assumes it. He uh, spends time temporarily arguing for the fact that this is just a principle of life in this world, that you work and you get a paycheck. But specifically what Paul is doing is he's saying that Jesus Christ has formed a connection between ministerial labor and a paycheck. And he makes two arguments to buttress that claim. His first argument, I would say, is a common sense argument. An appeal to the natural world argument. Uh, Something that we're all just culturally aware of and have agreed on. That if you work, you get to partake of the things that you work in. And we'll see that from uh, verses 7 there. Then he makes another argument. At which point he says it's a divinely sanctioned thing. That there is a connection between work and a paycheck. So that's what we want to unravel here this morning and draw out its implications for us spiritually. But before we do that, I want us to reconnect what we're looking at here in verses 4 through 14 with a context. You'll remember back in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul had to deal with a problem in the church, and the problem in the church was this uh, that the strong Christians were eating uh, meat which had been sacrificed to idols in the idol's temple. The problem with that is that the weak Christians uh, who had been steeped in idolatry in their past, when they saw this happening, also would follow suit and eat. And when they did that, they felt like they were worshipping this false god. The problem with that is that these Christians stumbled and became uh, bruised spiritually, and it was an enormous problem in the church. And so Paul, seeing that situation, says in verse 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never go to a barbecue again. And then what he says is that we have to learn to moderate the use of our Christian freedom Uh, in accordance with where our weaker brethren are in their abilities to use Christian liberty without causing themselves spiritual harm. Well, Paul now transitions from that in chapter 9 to talk about himself. As we talked about um, last week, and if you were here for that, you remember the sermon, basically what we argued is a lot of people think that chapter 9 is a big mistake. It probably shouldn't have been in the book of Corinthians. That it's sort of a miscellaneous uh, set of instructions from Paul as he appeals to his own example. They say it really doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the letter, but we argued that's not right. We argued that what Paul was doing here is addressing the situation of how to sacrifice our privileges for the sake and spiritual benefit of others in Christ. 
And what he does here is he appeals to his apostleship. And he says, I'm an apostle. And he proves that by uh, saying that he's seen the resurrected Christ. And now here's the argument. I'm not just an apostle, but I also have a right to apostolic privileges. And one of the apostolic privileges here that he is going to sweep out in verses 4 through 14 is the fact that he is owed a paycheck for ministering spiritual things to the saints. So that gets us caught up uh, with our context. And now let's turn our attention here to the arguments. We said that Paul makes two arguments. Paul makes two arguments here. Uh, He argues... That it's a human constitution, that there is a connection between uh, work and a paycheck, and he also argues a divine one. You can see that human one emerge in verse 8. He says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Now the things he's referring to are obviously the things that are contained in verses 4 through 7. He says, those are human kinds of judgments. things. Those are kinds of things that culturally everybody agrees on. They're rational arguments in a sense. He says, I'm speaking according to human judgment. He assumes it's a valid judgment. But let's look at, uh, beginning with verse 7, some of these human judgments. Now, first of all, you can see in, in verse 7, he gives us three examples of obvious uh, human judgments where we all know that the worker has a right to compensation. And the first one, interestingly enough, is an appeal to the illustration of a soldier. He says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? This is a self-evident argument. Uh, You don't sign up for the military and then offer to pay Uncle Sam the privilege to be in the military. No, uh, what Uncle Sam does is he sends out a lot of guys in really fancy looking uh, military uh, apparel and they tell you that Uncle Sam wants to give you the best deal you've ever heard of in your life. Especially if you're 18 years old. If you join the military for the next four years, he can put more money into your pocket, more benefits into your pocket, give you, uh, give you all kinds of money to help you go to college when you're done, pay for your health care, your dental bills, all of that, provide you with uh, wonderful clothes to wear every day, and three square meals. Now that's a great deal for a lot of 18-year-old men, and, and women too. But you see, it's self-evident, even at Paul's time, soldiers don't sign up for the military to pay out of their own pocket to provide for their, their, their needs as soldiers. They don't, uh, they don't pay for their own bullets and ammo and food and clothing and uh, gear. And then Paul goes to the next example here. He says, and who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who spends uh, uh, long, hot, dusty days out on the farm attending to the grapevines without ever expecting that at the, at the time when grape harvest rolls around and that in and of itself is a massive ordeal to harvest these grapes and to bring them in uh, who does that without getting to share in the harvest who does that without being able to take a bushel of grapes home to make grape jam uh, Paul say it's self-evident that that's not how it works. We all know that people who work in the field get at least some of the produce of the field which they were working on. Then he looks at the issue of a shepherd or a, a tender of flocks. And he says, who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk? 
Uh, who watches the goats and doesn't get some of that good old goat's milk and make uh, feta cheese? You see, uh, Paul is saying, we all know this is just the way it works. But it's not just that it works that way in the world. If you skip back to verses 4 and 5, you can see that the Apostle Paul says, uh, it also works that way in the church. Verse 4, he says, uh, don't we have a right to eat and drink? Now, Paul is particularly fond of rhetorical questions. And the answers are almost always implied. He says, uh, don't we have a right to eat? Yes. That's basically what he's just saying. We have a right. Then verse 5, he says, Do we not have a right to take a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? The answer is yes. He says, suppose there's a minister in Corinth and he gets a call to a church in Ephesus. Doesn't the church in Ephesus have an obligation to pay for the moving expenses of the, of the pastor and his family and his belongings, move him to Ephesus, get him a place to live in and pay for his salary? The answer is yes, and he even points to the fact that this is already happening within the church. He says the rest of the apostles, the brothers of the Lord and of Cephas, all have this deal. It's the everyone else is taking advantage of it argument. This is a self-evident. This happened. By the way, I, I was going to stop on this verse and spend some time uh, making it clear to all of us that Jesus really did have uh, real brothers and sisters. Because you can see that there in verse 5. It says, brothers of the Lord. Jesus had real brothers. If you look at the Gospels. Look at the book of Galatians. Jesus had real earthly brothers. He also had sisters. And that means then that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Uh, it also says here that Cephas was married and took along a wife. Which completely uh, destroys the argument of a celibate a priesthood. Of Catholicism. Or Roman Catholicism I should say. I've decided not to go in that direction this morning. I don't want us to lose the force of the trees here. I just want us to grab the point. There's a connection here between the work and the paycheck, Paul says. It's happening in the church. You can even see it. In, in, even the Corinthians believed in this too. He says in verse 12, If others share the right over you, don't we have it more? The right refers back to verse 11 where... He says that people who sow spiritual things are entitled to material things. He says, you even Corinthians, you recognize this with the other ministers who are coming into your communion. You're taking care of them. Now, why would Paul go through these arguments here? We just need to pause, reconnect back to context. Because what the apostle is going to argue, um, we are entitled to this, but we have decided not to take any payment. We have decided not to take any payment. You can see why at the end of verse 12 he says, We endure all these things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. We don't use this right. And it's, it's, it's worth just throwing in right here so we don't miss it later on. Paul is, is arguing vigorously for the idea for a paid ministry. And then he says, Oh, by the way, I don't use the right. I'm just trying to illustrate for you that I have the right, and I'm trying to illustrate to you by my life and by my practices that it is okay for people who are so-called strong spiritual Christians to sacrifice their rights and privileges so that they can be a blessing to other people. And, 
And notice here, Paul says, my reasoning for not taking my salary is because I didn't want to cause a hindrance to the gospel. It's a very vivid word, hindrance. It means to cut up. It's used in uh, military contexts from the ancient world of, of soldiers digging up a road so it wasn't passable with uh, chariots and supply equipment. Paul said, I didn't want to disrupt the free flow of the gospel. If you've read through some of Paul's letters, you're well aware that a standard tactic to attack him was for people to come along after his ministry and basically charge him with being a soapbox preacher. A soapbox preacher. In the ancient world, there were lots of people who were gifted speakers who would set up their soapbox at the local flea mart and make plenty of money public speaking. He was often accused of that. He was often accused of of trying to get a group of people around him, turn them into his disciples in order to defraud them out of money and then leave town. And and you could see how almost that charge would stick because the apostle was rarely around town uh, in in most of the cases of his missionary missionary preaching assignments. He was there a very short amount of time. And and these, these people would come along after Paul and attack him and say, Yeah... You know, what do you expect from a guy? He just—he was here one minute and he's gone the next. And he was just there to use you. But Paul says, you know what? I haven't taken money from anybody. Because if I took money, and even though I told you all the right things, and even though I preached to you nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which is, by the way, precisely what he preached among the Corinthians... He says, I don't want anybody to come in after me and say, yeah, you've got a good point. Uh, This guy will say anything and do anything to get a crowd together in order to get money and then get out of town. That would be a hindrance to the gospel. Because that would make Jesus look like a person who's a mere opportunist, who plays on people's emotions, their natural, ordinary fears and uses that message to get rich. Paul says, I don't make use of this right. He says, everybody would agree that I have this right. Human wisdom says I have this right. But he digs deeper into his argument now, just not dealing with human issues. He says, the law also says I do. Look at the end of verse 8. And we'll move in, a, uh, in the passage now in a linear fashion. He says, uh, does not the law also say these things? Again, the, the answer implied is yes, the law does say I have a right to compensation. Then he does something that most of us uh, would not expect. He uh, cites a statute from the Old Covenant law about cows. Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. I'll come back to that in a second. I want to build up another point quickly behind this so that uh, we can really grasp hold of what Paul's doing here. And one of the things that I want us to realize is that Paul is assuming there is such a thing in the church as the ministry. 
Paul is assuming here that there is such a thing in the church as the ministry, that there are people who are called pastors and ministers or clergy, that there is a distinction within the church between the members. Uh, Almost all of the people in the church are members. And then you have clergy. You have pastors who have been called by Jesus Christ uh, to fulfill this sacred office of preaching the gospel. And Paul assumes that there is this distinction. And the entire argument rests on this distinction. And the only reason I feel troubled to bring it up is because it seems to me that this distinction is disappearing in evangelical Protestantism. It seems to me that with the growth of this concept of the every member ministry, which is based upon a completely incorrect translation of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, that the concept has arisen that there's really no distinction at all among the people of God, and that all of the people of God have been given the ministry to do. But for practical purposes, we might just appoint one guy to stand up here on Sunday morning who seems to be able to speak a little bit better on his feet to do the main talking on Sunday morning. But everybody else has a stake in the ministry. And so, therefore, we don't really need a paid ministry. An illustration of this... uh, came to my attention last week when I was reading an article on a website called fivesolas.org. By the way, the solas are Protestant. Just, just I say that by way of advance, but just listen to what he says. He says, a traditional and modern ordination concepts are unscriptural. The New Testament knows nothing of ordaining one man to an exalted, sacred, and priestly office within the church. Neither does it teach that only ordained clergymen possess the right to baptize, preach, conduct the Lord's Supper, lead a congregational worship, and pronounce the blessings as if the rest of the believing community is unfit to carry out these distinctions. Now, by the way, as I looked through the website, I found out that this man claimed to be reformed. I I found out that he claimed to believe in salvation by grace alone. I found out that some of his theological heroes included John Calvin. And I'm puzzled as I read this because this has zero to do uh, with the reformed historic Protestant conception of the office of ministry. You know, people of God, this is not, the office of ministry is not something that we have taken over from Roman Catholicism. We found it in the Bible. There's a difference. Acts 6.4, the apostles uh, tell the rest of the people of God in the midst of a big controversy in the church which threatened to rip it apart at the seams because the Grecian widows were not being ministered to and served their daily rations. The apostles said to that situation, this is, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and the prayer. Now that would be something entirely arrogant to do unless... There was a real appointment to a distinct office to the ministry of the word. Ephesians 4.11, we're told that Christ has ascended into heaven. He's given some apostles and prophets and pastors and some teachers. In distinction from the rest of the people of God. Galatians 6.6 says that the one 
And those who are taught are to share in all good things with the one who teaches. It's not Reformed. It's not Protestant. It's not confessional. It's not biblical to deny this distinction. Paul's entire argument here in this section it hinges upon the fact that there are people within uh, the church who Jesus uh, calls out, sets apart, and gifts, and calls to do the work of public ministry. And he says they are to be compensated, now back to verse 9, just like the cows were in the Old Testament. He says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. It is a quotation from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Now, what's interesting about this is um, Paul goes on to say, God's not concerned with uh, cows, is he? And then verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. We need to know something about what's going on here. Uh, In the ancient world, the way that they would get the husks off of the grain that they grew before we had modern machinery was that they would uh, turn a rather large cow loose in uh, in a bin full of grain. And that cow would just stomp walking through there, repeatedly stomp upon the grain. And when the cow was done with that, they'd throw the grain up in the air And the kernels, or the husks that were around the grain, uh, would blow away in the wind. And it's called chaff. The grain would settle on the floor, and then they'd process it and use it. What the law said is that when you release that big heavy cow in the bin to stomp out the grain, uh, you don't put a muzzle over that cow. You let the cow eat all the grain that the cow wants to. God had a regard for the animals. He didn't want them to be used as just machinery. They had to be cared for. But, but then Paul says, well, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? We're not, he's not so much denying that God cares about them, but he's saying, I'm going to draw from you a point, from the lesser to the greater. If God could be so concerned with, with animals that they should receive compensation for their wages, how much more? That's the point. How much more should the person who's breaking open the Word of God be given compensation for what he does? So, argument for the greater to the lesser, or lesser to the greater. Now turn with me to verses 13 and 14. This is his second argument. And it's also as interesting, really, as the first one. Uh, He says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly the altar have their share from the altar. Uh, What he appeals to here is the fact that the Levitical priests uh, had a right to partake of the offerings that the worshippers brought to the temple in an act of worship to God. You you can turn there yourself. Uh, Maybe we don't need to read them. Leviticus 7. You can jot that down in your notes. Numbers 18. Very clear. Very clear that the priests, as they ministered the sacrifices before the altar, had a right in those sacrifices, tithes, drink offerings, and monetary offerings. 
Now, what is so fascinating about that is the very two first words in verse 14. If your Bible's open, you'll see it. He says, so also. So also. See, just as God had arranged for the compensation of the priests who engaged in the priestly and sacred things of the temple, He says here, so also the Lord has directed that those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. He says, the Lord. And when he says that, he's referring to Jesus Christ. He's saying, Jesus Christ now, under the new covenant, has made no less of an ample provision for his ministers. He has proclaimed, he has, he has ordered it this way. We don't know exactly what text Paul has in view here, but it's probably Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Right before Jesus uh, was sending this, the 70 out for a missionary service, uh, he told them that they were to stay in the house where they went in the town to preach the gospel and eat and drink what they were given. And then Jesus said this, for the labor is worthy of his wages. See, Jesus made the connection there, even within the, the time frame of his earthly ministry, that his disciples who preached the gospel were to receive this compensation. Paul quotes that exact same text over in 1 Timothy 5. So, Paul gives two, two arguments here from the Word of God why there is to be a paid ministry. I want to step back from this for a second to contemplate the reasons for that because sometimes I think it's misunderstood why there needs to be a compensation, why there needs to be a people who devote their time and all of their life to the ministry of the Word. Because some may think that it's a privileged position. Some may think that uh, who is it that uh, should have this luxury of, of basically doing nothing else but studying the Word of God and thinking about spiritual things and reflecting upon the Word and preparing to preach. Well, God has given the command, but I want us to think for a moment about the reasons. And one of the reasons why I believe God has fashioned this connection is first of all because ministerial labor is work. Almost every time you see Paul describing the ministry, he calls it labor. Why? Well, because of something that he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately. Handling the word of truth. What Paul says to Timothy is, Timothy, this calling that you have from Jesus Christ to preach the word requires diligence. The word literally means intense effort and struggle. He says, Timothy, this is what the work of a ministry is. It's not six days of golfing and two hours of talking. And that's how a lot of people perceive of the ministry, is that we just play golf all week long, and bowling, and whatever else, maybe uh, video games, and then Sunday morning rolls around, and there's a couple hours of talking, and it's a pretty good arrangement. But what the Apostle is saying here is that to commit yourself to the ministry, to do it in the way that Jesus Christ has intended, is that it requires intense effort. Why? Because of the thing that you're to be engaged in, which is to be explaining the Word of God accurately. 
that word means to cut a straight course through the word. To take the people of God right into the text of Scripture and to show them how to get from one end of the passage to the other. In other words, how to understand the unfolding of the arguments, the reasons, the qualifications, the substance, the meaning of the words. You see, that's why I take so much time to make sure that your Bibles are opening and I argue in the middle of my sermon from references to specific words and phrases is because that's the calling. Accurate interpretation of the word. Why? Why does it matter that we be expositional and accurately interpret the word? It's because of what Paul says it is. It's the word of truth. It's the word of truth. And a ministry that involves itself with inaccurate interpretation is not a ministry of the truth. It's a ministry of distortion. And so that we fulfill this office and calling properly to accurately interpret the Word, there has to be time for the pastor to study so that he can come to church on Sunday morning and take you by the hand and walk you through the Word of God and say, this is what God is saying to you. These are His inspired words. These are words that God cared for so much that He breathed them out of His mouth to give to you. We need to understand that if God would do that, if God would have such a regard for us, that He wouldn't just leave us with the pious reflections and insights of godly men, but to breathe the very words of Scripture out of His mouth for us, then we need to take due diligence to understand the Word accurately. The second reason why I believe that uh, there is this arrangement, Paul says it here, verse 11. It's about great spiritual benefit. He says, if we sowed spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap a material harvest from you? You see, the work of the ministry is for great spiritual benefit. And the spiritual things there is the thing that I want to key in on as I look at this verse and make it a part of my argument. The spiritual things must be the ministry of the Word of God. Uh, If you look back to 1 Corinthians or Acts 18, where we have the description and the record of Paul's first ministry in Corinth, it it is accented over and over and over again that what Paul did when he came to Corinth is that he opened up his Bible and he and he reasoned his way. From the scriptures to Jesus. Week after week after week. He can characterize that in a different way. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You notice what he says there. He says, when I came to you brethren. I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you. Except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a spiritual thing. Paul says, I didn't come to you with the insights or wisdom of men. I didn't come to you fresh out of the library reading all of the latest peer-reviewed academic journals. I didn't come to you after having read Wikipedia. I didn't come to you after I read Dr. Laura and Dr. Phil and Oprah Winfrey and all the, the magazines at the grocery store. I came to you with the testimony of the Word and I preached to you nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Those are the spiritual things that Paul says he proclaimed. He proclaimed Christ. 
which is infinite, eternal truth, which saves and sanctifies the soul. And in order to do that properly, it takes time. It takes time to read and study and think and pray and meditate and get ready to preach these truths. Third reason why uh, there is this connection that has been forged is that um, ministers have an enormously important obligation. And that is, they're called to minister Christ. They're called to minister Christ. I know that from the parallel that Paul sets up here between the, the uh, priests performing sacred duties and the minister of the Word. You know, you look back to the Old Testament and you read to the book of Leviticus and sometimes the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and you read about the sacrificial system and Man, if you didn't have the New Testament, you'd be saying, what in the world is this about? Really, I mean, it's just uh, chapter after chapter uh, uh, talking about in the most uh, sometimes gory details about how to shred up this sacrificial beast and which part of it to put in the altar and where to dump the blood out. It's just really, it's amazing. But then you read the book of Hebrews and you realize that it wasn't just about like what the pagans were doing with all their sacrifices and empty rituals. What they were doing was ministering Christ to God's people. And that's why it had to be so meticulous is because it was to be a a representation typologically of Christ. And we know that to be true because Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that all of this was about a shadow that Christ was casting before the substance Christ came. You see, all of those uh, drink offerings, all of those uh, animal sacrifices, all of the ceremonies, all of the holy days, all of the diets, all of that ceremonial stuff was all about one thing. Christ. God's plan for His people has never been different. The nourishment that a Christian needs is Christ. I hope we don't miss that. The reason why the priests had no latitude to decide to incorporate into the worship of God things that they thought might be really uh, emotionally uplifting or motivational to the people of God was not because uh, they didn't have any creativity. It's because God wanted the worshiper to know that everything that was going on was about Christ. Because there's nothing else that you need but Christ. That's why Paul can say in Colossians chapter 1, he says, Him we preach. Christ. Christ we preach. Why, Paul? Why would you just spend your time talking about Christ when there's Plato and there's Aristotle and there's Protagoras and there's all of these very interesting discussions going among uh, the sophists about the meaning of reality? Why not talk about those things too? I'm sure there's some intellectual people in the church who would get a kick out of that. Because it's not about that. Paul says we proclaim Him so that every man will be made complete in Jesus Christ. The goal of the Christian ministry, Paul says, is that you are complete 
in Christ. And that means then that the ministry must be focused upon preaching Christ. You know, I get really bothered, and I do hear this, from people who sometimes grow up in the Reformed tradition. And they tell me, Pastor, I already know the catechism. I already know the catechism. I already know about the cross. Now what I really need is some practical. I really need some practical stuff. They say, you know what? You reform people, you're not very good at doing the practical. You don't talk a lot about balancing checkbooks and relationships and motivation, emotional uplift. Well, the problem with that is that I don't need that. Not for my soul. What I need is Christ. Paul says we proclaim Christ. Do you know what you need to hear every Sunday? More than anything else in the world, what you need to hear every Sunday, and I know that's not because it's my opinion. I read it in the Word of God. You need Christ. You need to hear about Christ as your mediator. You need to hear about the fact that Jesus Christ, and I know you already know this, because if you've ever spent any time in the church at all, you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and that death on the cross was the forgiveness for the forgiveness of your sins. I know we all know that, but you need to hear that every week. What you need to hear when you come to church on Sunday morning is that you don't have righteousness, and God demands it. But the good news for you is that Jesus is your righteousness, because He came here, He took upon Himself the form of a man, and He lived in this world, and He obeyed all of God's commandments, perfectly and that righteousness of Jesus Christ is stamped onto my account. I need to hear that all the time because I walk around and I don't feel that. I feel like I'm a bad person because I am. I'm a sinner. But the gospel says no, John. Jesus obeyed the law for you. I need to hear about Christ, how He is my sympathetic high priest in the midst of all my struggles and trials and sorrows and difficulties in this life. There is somebody that I can go to in heaven. And it doesn't matter if there's no money in my banking account. It doesn't matter if the relationships in my life are falling apart. There is somebody who is in heaven at the right hand of God who is in my flesh. And the Bible says He is sympathetic. And if I pray to that Jesus Christ who bears my flesh, there is somebody there who welcomes me into the presence of God and says, I understand. He says, I've walked a mile in your shoes. I know what it is to live in a fallen world. I need to hear about Jesus who saves to the uttermost people who are weak. I need to hear about Jesus who offers the promise continually to those with outstretched arms. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, if people are bored with that, it tells me that there's an enormous spiritual problem. Because what the believer needs more than anything else is Christ. That's why Paul says, Him we preach. That doesn't mean that alongside of that there isn't admonition from the Word of God, because there certainly is. But the central, all-consuming, significant thing that Paul says we do, and this is why we need people to be paid, 
to spend their time with the nose in the Bible all week long is so that they come to church on Sunday. They can tell me about Christ. Well, let's back away from all this and come to conclusion. Why is Paul bringing this up? He says, I, I exalt my apostleship because my apostleship means I'm entitled to privileges. Those privileges specifically that I want to talk to you about is the right to a paycheck for doing ministerial work. And he says, I don't avail myself of that because I don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. He says, what I've done is I've sacrificed that so that nobody can come along later and say that I was just a fraud. He says, this is what we are to have, is in the church, preachers who tell us about Christ. I want us to walk away with one thing on our hearts and minds this morning, people of God, and that is this. That it is an enormous privilege to come to church. It is an enormous privilege to be in a church. It is an enormous privilege that there is such a thing as a church. And it's an enormous privilege that within that church there are ministers. Because their function and their calling is to give you the one thing you cannot find anywhere else on this earth. And that's Christ. If you stop and think about it, there's nowhere else for you to go to receive Christ. That is an enormous benefit. We are 100% spiritually dependent upon that. Jesus knows it. And Jesus has arranged that we receive Him here. And He's done that by giving us the ministry and people who are called to proclaim. People of God, let us be grateful for our Savior and His glorious provisions for our soul. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank you that your apostles take us by the hand and walk us through arguments to impress upon our soul the deep significance of the spiritual truths that come from your very mouth. And we do pray that you would help us to be attentive learners, that you would always impress upon our souls the truth of your word, and that this would be real nourishment to us spiritually, would be a real receiving of Christ, a real partaking of Christ, a real growing up in Christ. And through that, sanctify us and make us complete in Him. And Lord, we pray this morning for those who heard this message, that with conviction, Your Spirit will apply it to all of our souls. In Jesus' name, Amen.